Glad that you're here. What an awesome time of worship and being before the Lord, uh, setting our the atmosphere to dive into God's Word and to hear what He has for us this morning. We've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We had a... <clears throat> It's kind of a letter that's a mix of feedback that the Apostle Paul has gotten as to what's going on in the church in Corinth, and also some requests, some questions that they had for him, and uh, the Apostle Paul kind of of weaves those two two things that's that's on his heart to, to both instruct them in and also to correct them in, which... Oftentimes there's not uh, there's a pretty thin line between the two, but he kind of weaves them together as we go along. We saw this slide last week. If you weren't um, here last week and you would kind of like that slide that gives you a better context of what's going on there, I'd be glad to share that with you. Uh, <clears throat> no doubt, if you were here last week, uh, you heard a per- pretty heavy message. Um, and as I said last week, I don't make any apologies about that. It's what the Bible says. And and my job, our job as, as believers, is to be messengers to the world, to be ambassadors for Christ, as the Word says. And sometimes that message is pretty tough, pretty tough to swallow, pretty tough to give. Nonetheless, uh, a heavy message, and uh, one that we desperately need. Um, I would venture to say... I guess I'll speak personally. Tammy and I didn't, didn't I have an opportunity to share this in conversation. Uh, and this may sound really weird. <clears throat> I would almost wish other addictions <laughs> for our young people. And I'm not making excuses, and I'm definitely young people not pointing you that way. But I want to say, I would almost wish other things were troubling our young people, other than the issues around their sexuality. Seriously. Like, uh, it's, it's that, that devastating for that long. And, and for you young people, y- you don't see that down the road quite yet. Maybe you're starting to. Maybe, maybe there's bits and pieces. Or maybe you're looking at older people's lives and you're saying, yeah, that's probably not a good way to go. Awesome. I'm glad that you're examining it in that way. But there's an aspect to, to where, we're gonna, where we've been last week and where we're going to go this week that you'll kind of get my meaning when I say I, I kind of almost wish that it was different. I actually wish there would, be, there would be none, actually. But like if I had to choose, you know, I'd almost wish that this area of purity would be the highest priority and carry the highest warning because, because it's the most devastating, I believe, to a young person, to their walk, it creates the greatest bondage, holds them back from both family, relationships. Uh, it, it, it pins them in a corner in opposition to God when they're given into it. You read Romans chapter 1, you'll see the depravity of man playing out, and you'll see the types of activities, the types of mentalities that go with giving yourselves over uh, to kind of anything goes sexually in our culture. Uh, if it's not your issue, um, well, it is your issue. <laughs> so that's probably not even a fair question, if it's your issue or not. 
Uh, it may be in the future, I'll put it that way, or it has been in the past, and maybe it is right now. We've got to come to grips with this. We have to be real and transparent about these issues of sexual immorality, promiscuity, all that goes with that, that it is real and present, and it's so unimportant. Your purity is so unimportant to our culture. It really is. It really is. And, and, and here's how it plays out, before we jump into where I'm going to go. Here's how it plays out. I got this out of a series years ago by Andy Stanley where he says, our, the, the enemy and our culture will bait us to the edge of the cliff. Then when we fall to temptation and fall over the cliff, they'll mock us for it. That's a pretty hard statement. But that's what we don't see. We, we, we're drawn like you know, flies to the light in temptation, but the minute that the bug zapper hits us, then the culture that baited you in, the enemy that tempted you in, ah, ha, 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 you know, look at that dummy. Look at how messed up their life is. And they mock you for it. And they make fun of you. And they look down on you. There's got to be a different way. Last week I mentioned statements like this. Uh, it's time to take a stand. For the church, it's time to take a stand. It's time to put a stake in the ground. And it's time to make a turn. It's probably, in reality, long past time. We can kind of all agree. Who, who would agree with that? Is it long past time? Like, like I'm seeing the, I'm seeing the, the older gentlemen in this room. Not, not just, I mean, there's a variety of people that raised their hands. But I'm seeing the older fellas that have lived life, you know, they're looking backwards down, you know, through life a little bit and saying, hey, whoa, long past time. Long past time to put a stake in the ground. When God does, what God does, <clears throat> what He does, let me rephrase this. What does God do <laughs> when He wants to make a change in the church? That's the question I want to start off to today. What does God do when the church needs to change? I'll tell you what God does. He shakes things up. And that shaking, that rattling, that, that, you know, wake up, wake up, wake up, my people wake up type of mentality that, that God has. He shakes people up when he wants to make a change. It can be really uncomfortable. It can be unsettling. But nevertheless, there's a passage of Scripture that we want to use kind of for an anchor point. I'm pausing in... 1 Corinthians 5 here for the sake of giving us a little more application specifically about this area of sexual immorality. Last week we saw kind of what Paul said to do with, with it and I'll get into that in a little bit. But I believe that God's shaking us up. Turn in your Bibles, if you will. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a great passage. Hebrews 12, verse 25 says this, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? In other words, 
Don't refuse the voice of Christ. Don't don't refuse the Word of God in your life. Don't hear it, walk away and say, yeah, that's just for one day of the week, or that's just for those situations. Verse 26 says, For whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken as of, the th- as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Do we get that? That the things that are shaken are going to remain. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. When God wants to make a change in his people, he shakes the earth. You look through the pages of scriptures, Dozens of times you will see a literal shaking uh, and dozens and dozens more a figurative shaking of, hey, it's time to wake up. I'm doing something here. I'm making a change here. I'm addressing an issue here. Shook not only earth but also the heaven. God wants our attention. He wants his people to turn into him and not away. And what happens a lot of times when, when our lives get shaken that hard, we're left at a crossroads. Are we going to keep pursuing Christ? Are we going to keep pursuing God? Are we going to confront the issues that are in front of us, conf- confront the sin? Or are we going to turn around, turn around, walk away? Can't do it. And I'm going to bail. And when I once was going this way, now I, I, can't, I can't do it. But he wants us to turn into him and not away. And why does God use a shaking to bring a change? 27 says, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are being shaken as of things that are being made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Two reasons. The removal of what doesn't belong in the kingdom. That's one reason that things get shaken up and a revealing of what does belong in the kingdom. So God shakes, shakes things up. It's a sense of purity in the sense that he wants to reveal those things. He wants to emphasize on those things, even those things that he's already told us, such as what we've talked about last week. We'll talk about again today. He wants to shake, the, he wants those things removed from his people, and the things that are not in his people he wants those revealed, a removal of what does, does not belong to the kingdom and revealing of what does belong in the kingdom. A quick definition if you're wondering what I'm talking about. When I talk about the kingdom of God, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Same thing, uh, same, same concept, just so there's no mistake. I'll give you my definition. It's God's rule and reign in the lives of his people in his church. It's God's rule and reign, his rule and reign in the lives of his people and in his, of his church. When the kingdom rule is absent, you really have nothing left but trouble. And there's a quick example we'll look at in that. In Second Chronicles chapter 15, describes it this way. Verse 5, in those times there was no peace, there was no one who went out. <clears throat> there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. 
There was no peace at any level of society. Uh, and I want your opinion, I guess, isn't that where we are today? Like, like that's, that's front page news. Put it on the banner of CNN and, and, and Fox News, right? That's, this is exactly what's going on in our world today. There is no peace. There's trouble. We can see over just the last couple of years how elevated the trouble is. Even in the church, how elevated the trouble is. But God has a solution for kingdom-minded people. Because the next verse says, But you, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. We have to be strengthened in order that... Uh, we need to be strengthened and in order to accomplish that from time to time God shakes his people he shakes things up and God shakes us up from time to time to see how much or how little kingdom principles we're living by that's a tough statement to say and a tough statement to hear I get that but one of the things that we do when we go to the word of God is we, we're to open ourselves up to God and say speak to me Convict me of where I'm wrong. Uh, encourage me where I need to go. Strengthen my hands. Strengthen my feet. Strengthen my mind. Empower me by your Holy Spirit. That should be our attitude. A lot of times, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that there's really a, uh, not quite enough <laughs> kingdom principles in our lives and a lot of cultural principles at play. Last week we examined the kingdom principle of abiding sin in the church, 1 Corinthians 5. We read about how God's solution uh, had a solution to repeated, celebrated, and unrepentant sin. Let me say that again. God had a solution for repeated, celebrated, and unrepentant sin in his body, in his church. It must be confronted, and it must be removed from the church. That's pretty extreme measures to deal with. Pretty extreme measures to deal with the apathy towards sin. Nevertheless, it has to be done. The Corinthian church was apathetic, which means they didn't much care. In fact, it actually says they kind of celebrated it. But they were kind of apathetic in their attitude towards Sin in the camp. And lastly, <clears throat> last week was a lot of identifying the problem and God's solution at that extreme level. And I'm kind of compelled for this week, I was sharing with the leadership this idea, I'm kind of compelled this week to pause there in that chapter in order to provide more tools and application to be free from immorality before it gets to that extreme measure. Right? Like, isn't it better? Isn't it? Is, Dennis, isn't it better to do a pre-flight check than to be in the air and have your wings fall off? I, I don't, I, I've flown with you, and I trust your judgment in the pre-flight check, but I have to say, I, I did wonder at one time, like, no, Dennis, I'm sure he's gone over this thing. Like, the wings aren't going to fall off, because if the wings fall off, we basically become a cannonball, and uh, down we go, Right? 
let me, let me make this statement really clear for everybody. God's just as concerned about keeping people, people out of the ER of life than he is healing up those that are in the ER spiritually in life and, and, and whatnot. Do you guys get that? Like he, he has a game plan to keep us out of that, you know, to keep us out of that type of uh, 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 carnage that we would avoid it. These are pretty extreme measures to kick somebody out of a fellowship so that their flesh could be destroyed and perhaps maybe their soul would be saved. And there's a large hindrance to dealing with immorality. It's a virus in the church. I'll venture to say uh, for a lot of my Christian years, uh, I was kind of under this spell. And so I want to start with dispelling it so that maybe as a church and as God's people we can move a little bit more in freedom. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the false belief that if I struggled with these issues, then I have no right or place to say what somebody else does. That if, that if, if this was my sin problem at any time, right? If any time in the past that I struggled with immorality... And you guys all heard part of my testimony last week. That was an issue for me at 18, 19 years old. Then for the rest of my life, this council culture mentality in the church has is, is invaded the church in this area. Like you mess up one time, then you're done talking about it. Then you have no right to say. That is not biblical. It's a false doctrine. No, the biblical pattern that we have to walk forward in love and grace and mercy, but in honesty and in truth. It's found in Matthew chapter 7. You know the passage, but I think that we often miss one word. Let's just go to it. Matthew 7. I'll just read it. There's one word. I was going to summarize it for you, but I think that it's more powerful if we just stare at it with our own eyeballs. And I know that Haley doesn't have it on the screen. Starting off, it says, Judge not that you be not judged, verse 1, which that needs to be put in context of what Jesus is talking about. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Most of us, that's enough to lock up the brakes in dealing with issues. Shouldn't be. Here's the reason why. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? That's where we all stop. It's like, oh, well, I, I, I can't say anything. I can't say anything. We focus on this part of the passage... As if it's a command from God to say nothing and let sin remain around us. That's not what the passage says. That's not the context of what Jesus is talking about. Let's read on. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, Jesus calls him. Well, you're a hypocrite if that's your approach. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite if that's my approach. If, if I'm sit, struggling with the same sin that somebody else is, and I'm over here trying to deal with them but not dealing with me, then I am a hypocrite. And we would all agree, absolutely. 
And you would all say, Mark, go deal with your own issues. And I should. And I should. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then these two words. And then should be underlined in your Bible. Deal with their own sin. And then, which is a continuing thought. And then, which means there's more action. There's more to the story. And then, which means there's more to the context of what we should be doing in relationship to one another. And then, he says, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Most of us stop. Most of us stop up at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. We never get to that point where we can help somebody else. Uh, Paul got to that point real quick in 1 Corinthians 5. Why did he get to that? How did he get to that point? Why did he get to that point? He got to that point because he had removed the log from his own eye. So then he was, had freedom and authority and compassion and understanding to help somebody else out. Which is the goal The goal is not to not judge or not to not do anything. That's apathy. When we deal with our own sin, then we can, should, and must help one another. And that gets dicey. The enemy wants us to keep thinking on and about our own sins that have already been forgiven so that, we, <clears throat> so that we disqualify ourselves from helping those that are stuck in similar sin. That's the pattern. That's the false doctrine. That's the misunderstanding. That's the deception of the enemy that is so prevalent in Christianity and it has to be dealt with. It ha- and it takes every single one of us to walk through this Knowing that if you see something, hey, you better make sure you do a little self-examination. Do a little heart check of yourself. Am I currently struggling with the same situation or another? And if I am, then, then, then that's not my spot to step up and say, I need to deal with my own. But that doesn't mean that they don't need help. And the problem is, is we sit back way too much, and I'm just as guilty, maybe more guilty than anybody in this room, of sitting back and watching people struggle with sexual immorality and saying nothing. And so I'll confess that right up front to everybody. But a lot's changed over the last couple years for me, both in my understanding of the Word and relationally and within this fellowship. And so I'm compelled, I'm compelled by the Lord to address these issues head on. And if that's troublesome... I'll try to do as loving and graciously as I possibly can. Uh, But I'm an old lineman. We're used to -to hand-to-hand combat, right? I'm not as good as I once was, if I can quote the old... But I can go one time, two times, and I'm not afraid to step into this arena and call things out where they are. And And that means the war's on, okay? That means the battle's heating up spiritually, that means the enemy's coming after me. 
That means if you're in that mode, that means the enemy's coming after you and is going to try to affect you in some way. So be ready, right? He's great at offense. So I asked this question last week. When are we going to put a stake in the ground as a fellowship and stand for what's right? First point I want to say is is that kingdom-minded people, kingdom people put a stake in the ground about sin. There's no way that you can get around that. Kingdom people put a stake in the ground when it comes to sin. I shared this verse with a few people this week, or this passage. In Numbers chapter 25, probably the least read book in your Bible, people think Numbers, and they think, oh, is that a math book inside the Bible? <laughs> That's okay to laugh at that one. That was actually a joke. No, it's, oftentimes we don't read it. Oftentimes we skim over it. We, we uh, blaze past Numbers. We like to look at Genesis and Exodus. Then we like to go to Joshua. <laughs> And we miss everything in between, which is critical, really, to the uh, overall picture in the storyline. It's hard to know what God's overall picture in the Bible is if you skip over big chunks of the Old Testament. So let me encourage you that way. But in Numbers 25, we have a situation where the Israeli men were taking for themselves Midianite women. Not only were they intermarrying who God told them not to, but they were merging the two worship practices together to a degree that they were literally having sex in the, tabern- in the tabernacle. An obvious abomination to God, and his anger was kindled against them. He was going to bring a big shake-up to his people. And it says there in Numbers 25, before we get to where we're going to go, that the people were there and mourning and weeping, Verse 7 says, Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw, that, saw it, exactly what I described was going on up above, Israeli man with a Midianite woman in the temple, having sex, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. God had brought a plague because of their disobedience and because of their sinful activity. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. I ask the question, when are we going to put a stake in the ground? This guy puts a stake in the ground through two people to do what was right and to address immorality in his day and in his culture. And it's a graphic scene, obviously. I mean, if you don't like graphic scenes, you might as well just throw your Bible. Just hand it in out here in the foyer. We'll give it to somebody else. The Bible's full of these types of examples of where people got so far off the rails, and then all of a sudden God comes in, and he, and he pronounces a judgment. He pronounces a, you know, <clears throat> he calls it a plague. People are dying. 
People are weeping, and everybody's wondering when this thing's going to stop. And old Phineas says, I got an answer. I'm going to go right after sexual immorality. And we're going to do it on the spot. And it was public. And it was gory. And two people sacrificed their lives because they had sacrificed their souls to worship in idolatry. That's how serious God takes it. So let's not try to soften it too much. God takes this thing serious. That's making a stand against sin. That's putting the stake in the ground literally. And Phineas' action was on the heels of this uh, weeping and repentance. The very thing that Paul scolds the church in Corinth over because they weren't even mourning the immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Rather, they were puffed up about it. And before we move on to the next point, Phineas then is, receives two blessings. Verse 12 says, Behold, I will give him my covenant of peace. Peace is the rarest of commodities that a man can have. Peace is the rarest commodity that you can have. If you have peace in your life, if you, if you live a, a peaceful, content life, you're a rarity today. Everything about our culture stirs up unrest. Everything about our culture stirs up discontentment. Everything about our culture makes and pushes us and leads us towards some form of covetousness. Meaning, I want more, I need more, I want more. Well, I want a new truck, or I need a new car, or we need new furniture, or we need, we need, we need, we need, we need. No, Phineas had peace. He was given peace. Not only was he given peace, he was given a priesthood. Which meant lifelong, multi-generational blessing for him and his descendants. Because the priests were taken care of. They had tasks. The Levites had tasks, for sure. In worship and leading in worship and the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. They had duties that they had to perform. But all of the rest of Israel worked hard to take care of them because of what they were doing. Their job was to promote righteousness. We talked about that at Men's Breakfast a couple weeks ago. And to stir that up and to encourage and to teach and promote and that's what Phineas was given. He was given the blessing of that. Not to, it, he hit the lottery, but it didn't mean that he didn't ever have to work. Or his, you know, it wasn't that type of a thing. But God was just willing to bless them, him, his descendants, because of the fact that he took a stand. The second thing we want to look at, and probably where we'll spend the most time today, is around this point that kingdom people, so the first point, kingdom people put a stake in the ground about sin. The second point is, is that kingdom people live in the reality and the identity of their new life. People live in the reality with the identity, understanding who they are. So for you, you understanding who you are as Christ recreated being. If you're born again, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, following, trusting in Him, all that goes with all of that, if that's not you, then you can just saddle up and go along with today's ride, and it might be a bit rocky. Uh, I, would I really invite you at this time to reconsider uh, the fact that you don't have a relationship with Christ, if that's you, and I'd love to talk to you about it personally. Uh, 
But God's kingdom people live in the reality and the identity of their new life. Let's go turn your Bibles back to the right. Now we've been in the Gospels, then the Old Testament. Go to Colossians chapter 3, or look up on the screen, or look at your iPhone, or your smartphone. There's some points here that we're going to look at in Colossians chapter 3. I'll give you the quick list, and then we'll dive in, and then you can highlight them in your own word. Write them down in the notes in the back of your bulletin, if you wish. Uh, The first thing is, they were raised with Christ. And kingdom people seek Christ. Kingdom people set their minds on Christ. Kingdom people are hidden in Christ. There's death to sin. There's a list of things that kingdom people put off as sins. Sins that we're to put off to do away with. And there's a list of character qualities and attributes and attitudes that we're to put on. We're to put on that new man. We're to put on the fruit in keeping with repentance. That's not, that phrase is not in here. That's in the Gospels. But it's the same concept right here that Paul talks about uh, that is parallel with what John the Baptist encouraged these uh, brood of vipers, these snakes, these Pharisees that were trying to trick him up, trip him up. He just said, hey, put on fruit in keeping with your repentance. That same concept shows up in chapter 3. Let's read it. Colossians 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is. If you're struggling with sexual immorality, you have this list in front of you. These are all applicable bullet points of things to do that will point you in the right direction when it comes to sexual immorality. So if you were raised with Christ, so first of all, are you saved? Are you raised with Christ? Seek those things which are above which, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are, <clears throat> which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Kind of a hearkening back to Romans chapter 1. Verse 7 here in Colossians 3 says, "In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. In other words, he's saying, hey, This is why our identity is so important. Understand that we have a new identity in Christ. Because that's the old life. That's the old me. Not the current me. That's the way I used to be. Those are the things that I sought forgiveness for. Those are the things that I repented to God for. Those are the things that I I confessed to my brothers and sisters and said, Hey, I need help. That's the old me. Not the current me. That's new identity thinking. That's kingdom-mindedness at its best. Verse 11 says, Where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ 
is all and is in all. Straightforward admonition that uh, nobody gets a leg up according to their ethnicity. Nobody gets a, a leg up according to what ritual process they went through, circumcision, uncircumcision. Nobody gets a leg up whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. Nobody gets a leg up whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're a slave, whether you're free. Nobody gets a, they're, they're, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Christ is everything and he's in everything. Therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, understanding that that's who we are, not sinners, saints, the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's how we're described. That's what describes our identity in Christ. Right here, that's one of the many descriptions in the Word of God. But therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, here's the things that we're to take on. Here's what the new man looks like. Where he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You guys know what long-suffering is, right? Suffering long. You know there's a thin line between a long sermon and a hostage situation? <clears throat> have I told you guys that before? I think I have. Once you hit 50, you start repeating all your jokes. That's what my kids started telling me. Long-suffering means that you're patient. You've got a view for the, for the long game. You've got a view for down the road a while. You gotta, I like to use this word. If you're long-suffering, you understand really well what having a generational mindset is. Because you're not just playing the game. You're not just dealing with stuff for today and how it affects you today. And how it affects the church. How sin affects the church today. That's not it. Long-suffering is this, hey, how can we make a difference for generations? How can we impress and, and teach and turn and guide people for the next 300 years should the Lord tarry? Most of us, though, and I've been guilty of this as much as anybody, most of us don't have that mentality. We're like a brand new driver. Somebody that just got their driver's license. You know what brand new drivers do? And I really like to pick on the kids once they just get their driver's license. Nobody wants to raise their hand? We know who you are. You know what a brand new, you know the struggle for somebody that hasn't been dri driving for very long is? And so this is encouragement. Don't, don't take it the wrong way. Brand new drivers have a tendency to drive right off their front bumper. Right off their front bumper. That's why they teach and train and try to get you to see, you know, like down the road, look down the road, look down the road. In our spiritual lives, we cannot have that just off the front bumper mentality. Right? We have to broaden our scope and lengthen our scope. That's what long-suffering will either teach you or you'll be taught into that idea. Verse 13, bearing with one another. There we go. That's long-suffering, can be. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. 
That's that equivalent to dealing with the plank in your own eye. That when there's offense, when there's uh, broken relationships, when there's uh, difficulty and division, of which Paul just spent four chapters dealing with division, then we go back to our model. We go back to the perfect example that we have. So as Christ has forgiven you, so must you also forgive the other. That's dealing with that plank. That's not letting that plank, then as you walk around, start bumping into other people and whacking other people in the head because it's sticking out of your head and you can't see where you're going. But that's literally what happens many times. As the offenses that we carry start pounding onto one another in a negative way. Forgive as Christ has forgiven. But above all these things, Paul says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Notice again how important peace is. I would venture to say for the rest of his days, Phineas had the peace of God ruling in his heart. Not that he wasn't susceptible to temptation. Not that it made him inhuman. He was very much human. But his blessing for doing what was right led him to peace. And Paul says here, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And I think one of the biggest holdbacks when it comes to sexual immorality is this idea that we're just restless people. And there's, there's, there's not that peace because there's so much struggle and turmoil all around us, maybe and even in our own lives. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. These are all fruits that are consistent, or as John the Baptist said, in keeping with. These are spiritual fruit that is consistent with our repentant lifestyle. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. I did, it at, you know, I did it at camp. I threw a stick in the fire. You know, or me and the counselor, you know, or there's a group of us that was sitting on the beach. You know, or whatever the case is. And, and, and you considering that your opportunity to be repentant, it should, if that was the case, let me give you this. That was, should have been the first of a lifetime. But if it was the only, if it was the only opportunity for change, if it was the only impact, and then you just disregarded it, if it was the only time, uh, my encouragement is this, I would be highly concerned for you. <laughs> I would be. Because the likelihood is, is that you're probably not saved or maybe at best, backslidden, come back to Christ. The great news is, is that no matter where a person is, the answer is Christ. For the non-believer, the answer is Christ. For the backslider, the answer is Christ. For the believer, the answer is Christ. The answer is always the same. So no matter where you are on the, in the field, go to the Lord.
Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's kind of our marching orders. It's kind of the way that we should see it, the way that we should be operating. It's all for God's glory. It's a bit of a heart check, whether we're doing it for our own uh, praise, our own glory, doing it for uh, recognition, whatever that is. Rather, the idea is, is that whatever we do, we should be doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God through him. <coughs> Excuse me. The third point I want to make is, is that kingdom people flee from sin and pursue godly character. Kingdom people flee from sin and pursue godly character. The Bible's full of examples. Uh, Joseph fled from sexual immorality, fled from the grips of Potiphar's wife in Genesis, said, oh, nope, out he went. She was after him. She had her eyes set on him. I'd encourage you to jump in Genesis and take a look at it. But his response to what was going on was to flee. There was a situation um, years ago where my parents got an opportunity to go over to Seattle, and it was the first opportunity my dad had to go to a Seahawks game. And he was kind of given a shuck and jive a little bit. The guy that he got the tickets from said it was right in the middle of the field. So he thought it meant the 50-yard line, which would have been awesome. And I've been to a Seahawks game where I sat on the 50-yard line, and there's not a better view in the house. But this is in the old kingdom. And so the guy said, yeah, it's right in the middle of the field. <clears throat> it was right between the goalposts. <laughs> so his view was lengthwise, not crosswise. But anyway, uh, so <clears throat> my parents headed over, and uh, they took my older sister Melinda with them. And at the time, my Aunt Peggy had a restaurant just three blocks from the kingdom. So on game day, they are completely packed. Then everybody goes to the game, and then it's a mad dash to be restocked, reprepared, uh, to take the after-game rush. Because three blocks, I mean, most people walk further than that one. When you go to a game, you're going to park further than three blocks. So anyway, so the plan was, is my dad would go to the football game, my mom would go help my Aunt Peggy at the restaurant for this big post-game rush, and my sister went with my cousin's wife and a friend of hers to go watch, basically, they all had little kids, and so Melinda was going to go and kind of, for whatever reason, hang out with them and babysit. <clears throat> if you know the greater Seattle area, they lived in Ballard, and everybody else is downtown. What happens was, we'd always been taught as kids that if you get in a situation that is not good, it's unhealthy, where you feel there's some sort of danger, something's not right, get out of there. That's what our parents taught us. Never did we know that we'd be in this situation. And uh, so what happened was, is as the gals all went to Ballard and started hanging out, <clears throat> a bag of weed got set up on the kitchen table, and a couple of these ladies started smoking pot, and my sis freaked my sister out. Now, here's where she was. She was in the seventh grade, 12 years old, not even in the seventh grade. 
what is that, sixth grade? I don't even remember. She was in the sixth grade, I was in the fourth grade. So, yeah, that makes sense. So what does my sister do? She said, hey, this is a bad situation. Hey, my dad said, my mom said, that if you're in a bad situation, flee. Biblical principle. So she snuck out the door and took off running. She happened to tuck in behind two or three college students from the U that were running in the same general direction. She had a pretty good sense of direction, so she kind of knew where she was going, roughly. Ridden in a car from, to, from the restaurant to where they were, but never walked it or ran it. And she tucked in behind, so it seemed like, from somebody else's perspective, driving down the road, that here's this younger girl jogging with a bunch of college students. And she ran all the way. How many miles is that? Seven? Eight? Six, seven? Let me tell you, there's an opportunity at every turn, young people, to get out of a situation. There's an opportunity, parents, grandparents, to encourage and even for yourself to get out of every situation that you know is not right. When your conscience is on fire... When the Holy Spirit's saying, it's time to go, don't sit around in the chair. Right? Because as a sixth grader, my sister was operating under authority and a biblical principle, and guess what she had? She had the greatest thing anybody could ever have. She had supernatural protection. Now, a little bit more to the story. My aunt's husband just had retired as a Seattle cop just a year before. He just retired, and so when the word, so with they, the cousin's wives panic. They call down. They're like, wow, we don't know what to do. We don't know where she went. She's not in the bathroom. So that got a lot of wheels in motion, and a lot of, and my Uncle Bob at the time got a lot of wheels in motion with the King County Police Department, or the uh, Seattle Police Department, and all that went with that. And she ran right on through. Didn't stop till she got to the restaurant. I believe she is under supernatural protection. She wasn't afraid. You talk to her, and many of you know her. You talk to her and ask her the story. I don't think she was, she was the least bit afraid. She had a general sense of where she was going. She knew that she was under the authority and the word of her parents, and so she went for it. And I'm not suggesting to all of you young kids to take off running down the streets wildly. I'm using it only as a story to say there's always an opportunity. There's always an opportunity. Joseph had an opportunity, and he had one opportunity to go. One opportunity. But the Bible repeatedly says, repeatedly says, and repeatedly uses these terms to flee. Let's look at the first one, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. We're going to get into that in about a month or so, so I won't over-preach it. But the concept is there. Flee sexual immorality. 
Walk away. Run away. Do what you have to do to not go there. Whatever that takes and whoever that takes. And I want to insert in this, it's not in my notes, but I want you to know that there's people around, like if this is a current issue, there's always people around you to help you. There's people here in this own body. There's always somebody that can relate with what you're struggling with. Always. And if they're living out the character qualities that we read in Colossians chapter 3, if that's them and their new identity, and they're working inside with, uh, of, of those gifts and character qualities that God's put inside of them, they're going to be reaching out there looking for opportunities. Don't hide behind the fig leaf. Don't hide behind the fig leaf. Reach out for some help. Embrace it. Second one is this 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. It's what they didn't do in Numbers 25. They were embracing it as a lifestyle. It's what they were doing in 1 Corinthians 5. They were embracing it as a lifestyle. They were having a good time with it, and rather God says, no, 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 no. We're to flee from these things. In fact, that's the very phrase that Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11. He says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And he writes in the second book, Flee also, in 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, there's a particular phrase there at the end of that verse <clears throat> that should be meaning to, meaningful to us as a group. We're to be in pursuit of righteousness, faith, and love, peace, but we're to be in pursuit as a group. We're to be pursued as, a, as, as the body of Christ, as, a, as God's people. We're to be in pursuit as the local church, an outpost of of. Uh, God's kingdom here on earth. We should be in pursuit and we should be in pursuit together because it says with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we should be pursuing these things together. That means that there should be a like-mindedness in the fellowship. That means that there should be common goals in the fellowship. This is exactly why Pete and Josh and the ladies are going where they're going, is to create a like-mindedness amongst parents for the next generation. The question that rides in my mind a lot of times is, do we got to wait 40 years for all the old-timers to die off? No offense to the old-timers. I'm just saying that that's what God did in the desert to purify His people because they failed to obey His word. No offense to you, old-timers. And Jim's smiling, so I know he's not offended. Now, thinking back on that story in Exodus, I are one of those. Because <laughs> everybody 20 and above had to kick the bucket other than Joshua and Caleb. And why did Joshua and Caleb get an exemption? Because they were the two spies that were unafraid to do what was right. And they were blessed in the long run for it. 
Joshua becomes the next leader after Moses. Caleb gets a big swath of land that he had wanted from the beginning. They were blessed in the long haul by God because they were fearless and knew that God would take out whatever giants, whatever enemies, whatever metaphorical sin is in our lives if we're fearless to walk in Christ, God will pave that way. We just got to keep going. But we got to do it together. We got to do it together. No strays and no low rangers. I took this out of an article by Tim Chalice about fleeing sin. It's an online article from his blog we are both to run away from spiritual danger and to run after spiritual good both to flee from the one in order to escape it and to pursue the other in order to attain it this duty this double duty of christians negative and positive is the consistent reiterated teaching of scripture thus we are to deny ourselves and to follow christ we are to put off what belongs to our old life and put on what belongs to our new life we're to put, on, put to death our earthly members and to set our minds on heavenly things. We're to crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Here's the part I highlighted the most. It is the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other which Scripture enjoins upon us as the secret of holiness. Do we get that? I'll read that part again. It's the ruthless rejection of of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other in which scripture enjoins upon us as the secret of holiness only so can we hope to be fit for the master's use and as I started the sermon there is nothing that's more entangling there is nothing that will bring a man or a woman or a young person an old person to their knees like sexual sin of whatever variety whatever variety and the bible the bible goes to no short expense to put them all on the table none bible talks about every possible conceivable way of sinning sexually and as we'll get into in coming uh, messages the particular reason why because it's a sin against the body the temple of god it's a combination, then, of rejecting the old, embracing the new, and rent, relentless pursuit. That's the key. We have to do it together. It starts by taking a stand. It starts by the putting off and the putting on. Point number four, kingdom people embrace God's will and God's work, uh, even, and may I just insert, especially when it's hard. Uh, we have to be hard workers. We, we need to be, men, we need to be hard workers. Boys, we need to be hard workers anyway. Like, it's time to get a few calluses on our hands, literally. Like, I, 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 would, I would guarantee, if you're a parent of a young, you know, teenage and down uh, son, uh, let me just tell you, what I learned growing up and what I taught my son growing up is there are not enough hours in the day to work hard. And there's not anything better for a young man's chemical makeup 
especially as they come into puberty and on into the high school years, there's not a thing that's better for them than to work hard and have a sense of accomplishment and understand that that's how they were created. That's what God made them for. Be protectors and providers. You don't learn to be a provider by sitting on your duff. It doesn't happen. You're going to be weak and ineffective in the long haul. That's just the way it is. So I'm saying work the boys. (laughs) Girls, you get no exemption. You just get a little sweeter twist to it, I suppose. Uh, Our girls worked uh, right alongside in every task that we did, from driving tractors to changing irrigation pipe. Robbie took all the heavy lifting. That's the way it worked. It worked for us. I think it'll work for everybody. But kingdom people embrace God's will and God's work, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. A couple of quick passages that we have to understand because there's often times that this is, becomes hard work and if we don't understand that, uh, then we're going to bail and we're going to miss out on what God has called us to do and who God's called us to be. The first one's Hebrews 13, 4 through 6. We're very straightforwardly, the writer of Hebrews says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. That's God's will for you. That marriage is honorable and that the bed is undefiled. He goes on to say, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such thing as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The presumption there is that if these are struggles, there's an opportunity to repent. If these are areas of of either current or unconfessed past sin, uh, God has an opportunity there for you to currently repent. For me, currently, for any of God's people to currently repent, which means turn around, I'm going this way, now I'm going this way. Confess my sins, which means I just agree with what God's perspective is in this situation. That's what confess means. I'm just like saying, hey, here it is. I'm agreeing with you, God. This is where it is. I, I, I don't want to be that type of person. I don't want to go that direction. No, rather, I want marriage to be honorable. Honorable among all. Statistically, fewer and fewer people are getting married. Statistically, those that are getting married are getting older and older. Statistically, the trend lines are, not only are there less people getting married, people are waiting longer to get married, people are having fewer kids, which is a whole, wrap that all up in a nice little bow, it tells you where our culture, what it thinks about marriage not only is that true, but just in the last decade or so, there's been a high, uh, a, the greatest degree of push that anybody in this room or perhaps even future or past generations have ever seen to redefine what marriage is. To make pretty much anything okay. And God says that's not okay. He defined marriage, He created marriage. He has a purpose in marriage, multiple purposes in marriage. And it's not up to us as creation to 
to go ahead and try to shuffle the deck and change God's dictionary and God's plan. Yet mankind, and again, and kind of parallel with Romans chapter 1, is running as hard and as fast as it can to redefine what God has already said and what God has already done. And why? That's the natural man. And the natural man, when faced with shame, with sh- faced with conviction, natural man does what Adam and Eve does, and they just keep pulling the fig leaves a little closer. Rather, we have this promise. Christ himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So then we can boldly proclaim, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And what can man do to me? We have an unfair advantage. An unfair advantage over the world that we don't utilize a lot of times. And I'm preaching to me now. We have an unfair advantage. The creator of this universe is on our side. He's our helper. Are we relying on that? Are we trusting in that? Are we living that way? We just need Him. Here's a good analogy. Is God your relief pitcher? (laughs) You just bring Him in the bottom of the ninth because you just need one more out? Is that how you see God? Or is God your general manager? The one that's putting people in place, deciding who starts, who plays Left field, right field, shortstop, deciding who pitches. Is God your general manager of your life? Is he sovereign over all things in your life? Or do you see God just as a relief pitcher coming in to bail you out of a jam? It doesn't work that way. A lot of people that I've talked to over the years that find themselves in a pickle when it comes to immorality. They want God to come in the bottom of the ninth and solve their problem. But there's no yielding. There's no surrender. There's no submission. There's none of that. A lot of people I've talked to want God to come in and fix their marriage. I said, well, where, <clears throat> you know, where's it going? I'm sure we're going to get a divorce. I said, oh, I wouldn't go that direction. Like, there's a lot of room for God to work here. Slow down the train and let God do some work. Well, I want Him to work, but it's too late. They just give up. They give up before the relief pitcher even comes onto the field, if you want to stay in the analogy. Just throw in the towel. But even if they do, if they're willing to wait just a little bit, Their patience is pretty thin because they've not learned what we just read about long-suffering. They've not learned the greater purposes of what God has for us in store when it comes to marriage, all that goes with all that. So they do what culture does and they bail. They just throw in the towel. Better luck next time is kind of their mentality. And it's the saddest thing. It's the saddest thing. 
And the kids are the ones that get thrown in the blender the worst. Like the kids are the ones that come out the bloodiest. We see this brokenness and this carnage. And I don't want to get too far into it because we're getting there in 1 Corinthians. By the time we get to chapter 7, things get pretty spicy. We fail to even start. And young people, man, if I can just impress upon you, parents, fathers, mothers, teach your kids that marriage is honorable, that it's holy, that it's a covenant till death. Like, that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And God will lead you in that. He will provide pathways in those things. Kingdom people embrace God's will and their work. The second point I have is to know how to live. First First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally, brethren, Paul says, we urge you, We urge and exhort in the name of the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. So he doesn't want you just to to, uh, survive. God's plan is, is that you should thrive. That's the abounding more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So all the instruction on how to be a Christ follower, Paul says, is, is, is come down the pipeline. It's all there for you. It's all written down. Everything that we need to know, cover to cover. More than maybe even we need to know. I don't know. That's probably not a fair statement about God's word. I will say this. There's more than enough. I will say this. There's more than enough. And often too, times, too much in our culture, when somebody gets in a pickle... Rather than knowing and living what they already, or rather than living what they already know, they exhaust all of their energy in looking for a loophole how to get around some technicality of God. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to get ticky tacky with God, that don't play well. It don't play well. God will upend that life to get His point across. No, he wants us to abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in that matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. When we go off the rails, I know this is true because it was true of me. When you go off the rails, when I go off the rails, when we struggle in this area, There's defrauding. There's defrauding. Defrauding is kind of a a, a bit of a broad term maybe. To defraud somebody is to take something that's not yours. To defraud somebody is is to kind of lie about it in the process. Tammy and I, speaking of taking something. Do I seem a little edgy? (laughs) I'm still thinking about yesterday afternoon. 
Tammy and I went out. We're getting really low in water for irrigation. So we went out to, um, we had to shut down a pivot. In the afternoons, late evenings, the water level in the creek is really low. So we can really have to limit our water use uh, just for the sake of there's not enough. So we said, all right, well, let's go out and grab a few hand lines out of that field, and we'll take them over and put them in this field with a few others, and at least we can run that onto this little strip of corn right by the intersection by our house that hasn't gotten, like the pivot misses an eyebrow around the corner there, and so the corn's not very tall, and it's really thirsty. So we went and got four sticks of pipe in one field, and set them out, we went to go get more out of another field, and we pulled out there, and I'm, I, I couldn't, I still, I'm dumbfounded that somebody would pull into our field and steal three pieces, pieces of three-inch hand line. For me to be speechless, from the pulpit, or in the field, there's other times where I don't say too much, I get it, I'll, I'll confess that, but that's a whole nother sermon. So we're, I, I, I'm like, I can't, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Sure enough, as we examined it, here's these tracks. And they come off the pavement. And they make a nice little loop. You can see where they unhooked them, drug them up onto a trailer, headed, strapped them down, and headed down the road. And the feeling of just being violated, <laughs> being defrauded of my property. You know, I had a situation earlier this week where a neighbor kid ran off the road um, because he was struggling <laughs> in his consumption of alcohol. But the reality is, is he ran off the road and he ran over a bunch of other pipe that was in that same field. You know why I didn't feel defrauded about that? Because he came over and he sought my forgiveness. He came over and said, I, whatever it takes... Whatever it takes, I'll make it right. Whatever it takes, I'll pay for it. Just let me know. He said, I'm 100% completely to blame. It's my fault. I'm really sorry. He's teary-eyed <laughs> a little bit. Of course, he's a little puffy-eyed too, which probably <laughs> the natural course of the next morning has that deal. But he sought my forgiveness and I said, listen, I said, I, I, I'm not offended. I said, I, I forgive you. And I said, I, I want to tell you a story. <laughs> I happened to know another young man at about 19 who was struggling in the same way. And I said, I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you to start considering life a little differently. Considering who's watching over and protecting you even last night. See, I did, there was no defraud there. There was there for a split second, but the, the minute that forgiveness is sought and forgiveness is given, that goes away. In the other situation, the only thing that goes away is my property. Fortunately, we just happen to have enough more hand line. That's not the point. The point isn't that we have more We made it work, for sure. But there always kind of be that riding sense of being defrauded. When we sin sexually, in whatever manner, across the board, there's a defrauding that goes on 
at at least one level, if not multiple levels, with people around us and even with God himself and within yourself. That's why Paul takes this so serious. Few times will you see this type of language, but it's so serious. Then no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner because here's, here's the reason why. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. The question we have when, when, in the midst of it all, or even in a moment of clarity, or in a moment of teaching our kids or teaching other people, <clears throat> do you want to put yourself at risk of having God avenge against you for defrauding somebody else? Like, that's how serious Paul's talking about this. That's how serious that he considers adultery. That's how serious he considers fornication. That's how serious he takes uh, all of these things into account is that God's going to square it up. Not a great place to be. And he says, as we also forewarned. So he's not mincing words, the fact that he's warning them. As we also forewarned (coughs) forewarned you and testified. God is definitely shaking things up. He's shaking things up so that we can see a difference between the culture, the culture that's around us, and the culture of his kingdom. He's shaking things up so that his kingdom, his rule and reign will expand. That it's just not about you personally, which it is, but that's not all it is. It's about his kingdom and his kingdom principles expanding beyond just you as a person, and beyond just you as a couple, and beyond just you as a family, and beyond us as a church, that these kingdom principles, and especially the principles in regard to immorality, and how we should live, as opposed to oftentimes how we do live or have lived, that those kingdom principles will go out, out further, and reach out and out and out. And there will be pushback. And you will probably be ridiculed and mocked. You might even be banned from speaking. You might even have uh, people that that say, "I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Stop. Stop. Does that stop the Word of God? Didn't work in the Middle Ages too well. Didn't work in the first century too well. The church grew under persecution. The time that this was being writ, all that we've read except for what came from the Old Testament, was when the church, part of the time the church grew the most as these things were being addressed. Bear that in mind. As we close and as the worship team wants to come on up, I want to say this, is that God always provides a pathway towards him. The verses that we read, especially the ones out of Colossians, the other ones out of Hebrew, first and second Timothy, God is providing a pathway for his people to walk towards him. Remember this that God had the solution before you had the problem. I'll repeat that. God had the solution before you even had an issue. So he knows what he's doing. He knows 
how to help you. He knows how to guide and direct and comfort you. He also knows how to warn you and how to rebuke you and how to teach you. And it's a full package. We can't get just, you know, soft and cushy on one side and, and neglect the sternness of God and the judgments that, that he has proclaimed for ungodliness. If somebody asked me for advice, then I would give them these ideas, and they all start with the letter E. There's five truths as we end. I'll throw them up there real quick. We can lock into them at another time. But there's five truths to embrace. One is to encounter. Two is to embrace. Three is to the idea of it's every day. Four is empowerment. And five is to encourage. So if somebody came to me and said, hey, I'm struggling with this, I would first say, hey, uh, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says about your situation. That's where a lot of people jump off the rails, actually, because there's there's a fact that's true. Most people do not want counsel. They want confirmation of where they already want to go. And so they come with a set of presets that are already pointed in a direction. And oftentimes there's no amount of conversation that's going to change their mind. They're just wanting you to get used to the direction that they want to take. If that's the case, honestly, I don't know what to say. Have fun. We'll see you in the end, I guess. I, I don't know. But they need to have an encounter with the Word of God. They need to come under the authority of God's Word. They're not calling them to repent about their situation. That's the idea of embracing God's plan of recovery in your life. That's the idea of of embracing God's plan of recovery is to stop the sin, repent, so then you can move forward the right direction. Then it's an idea of every day. Show them practical steps. Hey, we looked at a ton of practical steps today. Things can help us in the area of sexual immorality. Show them practical steps to obey. Every day, every every morning, throughout the day. I could list thousands and thousands of more scriptures, more ideas that would help fill in those practical steps. But you don't get there without the encounter and you you don't get there without embracing this idea of repentance, following after Christ. Then comes the fun part. Then we pray that the Holy Spirit empowers them to obey God. That's the empowerment piece. So we encounter, we, we, uh, we encounter, we embrace, we look at it in an everyday practical sense, but then it's the empowerment. It's like, God, give that person opportunity. Give them the ability, the supernatural ability to follow what your word says. In this moment now, their, their slate is clean before you. They've repented of their sins. They've come before you. They've confessed it. Now, just empower them. You think God won't do that for people? Absolutely. He loves to do that for people. He loves to do that for people. He loves to show himself off that way. That you're not bound to who you used to be and the way you used to be. That God empowers you to do something different and to live his way. And then the last one, of course, is then to encourage. Show them how their situation can help others. There's way too much hiding behind what used to happen. Being ashamed of what happened. I'm not saying we have to glory in our own sin. 
But if you don't use the story of Christ in your life for other people, why would he even do anything for you? His, his goal is, is that you would use the actions and the things that he's done, the good, the bad, the ugly, in a way that would glorify him and encourage other people to glorify him. Amen? Am I wrong? Like, go do it. Let's just do it. We don't... Phrase often used. To my shame. I heard this in so many testimonies. To my shame, this is how I used to be. That's being real about your situation, but it's being also real about how God lifted you out of your sin and out of your situation and out of the rut of life that you were in and out of whatever it is, especially if it's sexual immorality, addictions as such, and has brought you up as a child of God. New identity, new way of thinking, new way of living. We must. We must. If we don't, we die in the desert. That's where we're at. That's the crossroads for the church right now. If we don't put a stake down, say something's got to change here, this just can't go on. We just can't do it. We can't have the, 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 the statistically even we can't do it have the sin and the division, the divorce rate, all that goes with all of that and survive as God's people. He's shaking us up. He's shaking me up. I think you've seen that. Let's go to the Lord and worship Him. I want you to know that there's a sensitivity amongst the leadership here that not only do we take it serious, but we're sensitive to the issues, but we are going to point you to the truth, even if that word's painful. Even if that word uh, is different than anything you else have ever heard or experienced and does not seem to be the norm. That's right. It, it will not seem to be the norm. Not from me. So there's stress, and there will be some tension. But I'm promising you this. And I'll promise it from the rest of the leadership, elders and deacons alike, is that we love you guys. We want to see you thrive in Christ. And we want to see your lives reflect the kingdom. We want to see you prosper as kingdom citizens in this world. Just an outpost here, Daddy. That doesn't mean we just tinker along and just kind of survive beans and rice. (laughs) Revelation says he's preparing a banquet for his people. So we can feast together. We can feast together. It starts with us. And if it starts with me, that's fine. It starts with me. I'm fine with that. I'm already putting the stakes on the ground. I'm already sharing things that are not real popular or not real normal. But it is what it is. That's what God told me to say. I don't make any apologies about that either. Let's worship together. Back to the sensitivity part. The front's open. My office.